Well, the Bible is uh, full of instructions for us. It uh, tells, we, tells us how to live, how we ought to relate to God, how we ought to relate to each other. It tells us how we ought to relate to ourselves. It addresses all different areas of our conduct. It tells us what it is that we ought to do, the things we ought to think, the things we ought to say, the attitudes that we ought to have. And then the range of the applications the Bible gives to us are broad. I mean, it expands, extends from the youth of our mouths to how we use our checkbooks, to how we use our time, to how we choose our friends, to how we behave on the job. And yet, in all of these instructions, the Bible tells us that it's not simply a book of do's and don'ts. I mean, the Bible isn't something of ethical character that just says, this is what you knew and this is what you shouldn't do. And you do this and don't do that. Because always in the Bible, there's always some type of theological truth that are behind the admonitions in the Scripture. Right? In other words, the Bible never tells us to do something without first telling us why we ought to do these things. I mean, think about the Ten Commandments. Do you know why the Ten Commandments were given to the people of Israel? They're given precisely because of the redeeming work that God did to redeem the people from slavery. Listen to Exodus chapter 20. Moses writes, writing on behalf of God, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is, this is who I am. I'm the redeeming God who brought you out. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. Therefore, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Therefore, you should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Why? Because God's redeemed you and you're different. You're set apart. God told Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. He told him the very next phrase, why? Because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So Joshua, be strong. Why? Because I'm with you. Time and time again, I think about how the prophets came to the people of Israel and told them to repent of their sin. And I always told them why. It's because judgment is coming and to escape it, you need to repent and turn and trust God. See, the Bible's not just a list of do's and don'ts. It always has reasons for it. And throughout our exposition of Colossians chapter 3, we've seen this. We've seen the similar reasoning that has come through this passage. <clears throat> In fact, I want you even to open your Bibles, if they're not already, to Colossians chapter 3 and show this to you. I've tried to show this to you over the, the weeks and... But it's, it's right here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The command there in verse 1 is that we need to keep seeking the things above, right? Where Christ is. Why? Because we've been raised up. We are there. We need to seek where we are. Verses 2, 3, and 4. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, right? Paul is telling us to, to focus our mind or attention upon the things above. Why? Here it is. For it explains, because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Right? Set your minds on the things above because your life is hidden there. You're safe in God. And someday Christ is going to return and manifest His glory and you're going to be revealed to be one of the sons of God. So seek the things above. Or, or how about verse 5? Therefore, Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Why should we consider the members of our body dead? Why should we keep away from these sexual sins? Why should we keep away from materialism of greed? Because, verse 6, it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you once walked when you were living in them. Why stay away from these things? Because God's wrath will come upon you if you can't stay in those things. Why should we keep away from these things? Because that was your previous life. That is not your life today. How about verse 8? But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. So don't hold this harboring anger and vengeance toward other people. Don't speak ill of people. Don't slander people. Don't lie to people. Why? Because you've laid aside those things. You've put on your new clothes. 
You've put on the new self who's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. This renewal, there's no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. I mean, these are all reasons and explanations of why it is that we ought not to be angry with people, why it is we ought not to speak against people, why it is we not slander against them, why it is we shouldn't lie. Because we're no longer like that. Well, here in verse 12, it's exactly the same issue again. We see all these admonitions, and yet we see a reason as well. Let me read for you Colossians chapter 3, 12 to 14, which is our text. So then, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. In the last few weeks, my outline has been, I think about two weeks ago, my outline was five sins to kill and two reasons to kill them. My outline last week was six sins to put off and a reason to put them off. My outline this week is similar. A reason to put on Christian virtue right? and eight Christian virtues to put on. It's real simple. Right? In previous weeks, it's been the, the things to do and then the reason behind it. Today, it's the reason behind it and then the things to do. And so, we'll look at it in that order. A reason to put on Christian virtue. That comes in the first half of verse 12. It really has everything to do with God and His character and how He has acted and behaved before you. Paul writes, So it's those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. Put on these things. As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on these things. There are three characteristics that typify that show forth the life of a believer. We're chosen, we're holy, and we're beloved. And you should come to embrace these things and internalize these things. That gives you the reason and the impetus then to go and live radically different. And these Christian virtues then will be manifest in your life. So let's look at each of these characteristics. First of all, chosen. By this term, Paul's simply saying that God had chosen those in Ephesus to be Christians. Yes, they heard the Gospel from Epaphras. And yes, when they heard the Gospel, they opened their arms and they embraced Christ and they chose Christ. Absolutely. That's true. But fundamentally, something else is going on here. Fundamentally, there was a sovereign God working behind the scenes, working His plans to bring His chosen ones in Colossae to faith. Right? When you do a bit of tracing through the Bible, you see that before the foundation of the world... God chose us in Christ. He chose a people for Himself out of all humanity that would be His. Long before anybody ever existed, long before the world was ever created, God said, this one will be mine, and this one will be mine, and this one will be mine. In fact, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 says that we were predestined to adoption as sons. You can't get around those words. That's what it's talking about. That's what this word is talking about here. We are chosen And the situation in Colossae was simple. There were those who were living in the first century whom God had chosen to be in Christ before the world was ever created. And as they came about, God determined where they would live and when they would live. And in His sovereign timing, He then brought the Gospel to them through the mouth of Epaphras. And as Epaphras brought the message of the Gospel to those in Colossae, some embraced it. Some maybe... First time they heard the message of the Gospel of Christ, it all made sense to them and they embraced it. And for others of them, it may have taken some time. It may have taken several years. But those whom God had chosen came to faith in Christ. They came to believe precisely because God had chosen them. God granted them faith. God granted them repentance. God opened their eyes. So they believed and trusted in the Savior. As they did that, then God rescued them out of the domain of darkness and transferred them to the kingdom of His beloved Son, just like He knew all along He would do. It's an act of His grace. They were redeemed and granted forgiveness of all of their transgressions. It's what God has done 
for those who believe and trust in Christ. He's chosen us for the foundation of the world and His sovereign grace has broken through into our lives to show us the glories of Christ. That's what took place here. He said that they were, were chosen. Second, they are holy. It's a reference to the work of God that God does in every soul of those who believe. He purifies those who believe in Christ. You know, by faith in Christ, your sins are wiped away. And you stand before Him blameless and pure. You know, every sinful act that you do, whether it's a sin of omission, which you didn't do, or a sin of commission that you did do, is written someplace in heaven upon a list. And this list is what you can might say is your debt to God. It's a little bit like the credit cards that we have, right? We, we receive something only to pay for it later. And in this case, we receive our sin, right? We act sinfully only to have to deal with it and pay for it later. And as this certificate is there, it stands in constant condemnation to us. The law points out all the things we haven't done and specifically the things we have done that are wrong are listed there on this list. And the, and the wonders of the glories of, of Christ in the Gospel is that in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, we read of how God canceled out this certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which is hostile to us. And in fact, God just didn't cancel it out. He took it out of the way because He took it out of the way to nail it to the cross of Christ. And that's how we can be made holy. The list of decrees of rules we never kept. The list of sins that we committed, all nailed to the cross. It was formerly against us and constantly cried out for our execution. Now it's been taken out of the way. In fact, it's been really transformed your ticket to heaven. This big list. It's got this big stamp on it in red blood ink that says paid in full. As we come someday, present that list before God. God, this is everything I've done. But you know what? It's paid. Paid for in the blood of Christ. As God looks down, He sees, yes, that is indeed the blood of My Son. And all this is wiped away. You can come in and enter into My presence. And rather than being expelled from heaven to spend eternity in hell, you've been forgiven of all your transgressions and you can walk before God as pure and holy and blameless. Right? And the way it works is pretty simple. Is that Jesus paid the price for your sins on the cross. Jesus gave you the righteousness that was His life. And, and I know in some sense this transaction seems incredibly fair, that Jesus would take our sin upon Himself and He, Jesus, would give His righteousness to us. I mean, it's so un-American, isn't it? I mean, America, the, the place where you work hard, right? You, you earn everything, but you can't earn this. Right? There's nothing that we do to merit election. I'm sorry, we do to merit um, our salvation. It's un-American. Because we think we can work hard and get it. So also is His electing grace. It's un-American because we so much think we're in control. But Paul says, no, you're, you're not in control. God has chosen you and God has made you holy through Christ. And why has He done it? It's really this third, this third characteristic here is that we are beloved of God. We are loved by God. God loves us. Sinners though we be, God loves us. Now, His love for you is not linked in any way to some inherent goodness in you or some talent that you might have or some ability that you can offer up to God in exchange for you know, His righteousness or exchange for His love. Listen, none of that. Do you know why you're loved by God? You're loved by God because God chose to love you. That's why you're loved by God. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 7. God explained why it is that He loved Israel. He said, The Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples for you were fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In other words, God is saying this. He says, I've set my love upon you because I chose to set my love upon you. You weren't a great people in my sight. In fact, of all, the truth be known, of all the peoples, you were the fewest. In fact, you were one. You were Abraham. And I swore to Abraham that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And I swore to Abraham that I would set my love and affection upon him and upon his offspring. 
And I, God says, have committed my love to him and to his children. And that's why you are loved by God. Not because of anything in yourself, but because God loves. I mean, I mean, He loves because He loves. He loves because He chooses to love. He loves because He has promised to love. And He carries that promise out. It's not based on anything in us. But, but here's the thing. That those who have trusted in Christ can be assured of His great love towards us. If we've trusted in Christ, we can be assured of His love for us. Because in the cross, God demonstrates His own love for us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. The death of Christ for us in our behalf is the greatest display of love ever known in the universe. And we know then also by the promises of God that those who believe in Him are, are loved of Him. They're called children of God, right? First John chapter 3, verse 1 just speaks about, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And such we are. So put all these characteristics together, right? We're chosen of God. We're holy of God. We're beloved of God. And, and every Christian, right, can, can speak forth of this testimony of these three characteristics. Every Christian can say, listen, apart from the working of God in my life and apart from His choosing me, I never would have chosen Him. I wouldn't have. What was once considered foolish to me in the Gospel now makes sense. It's not because I had great wisdom or great insight. It's not because I had great riches or honor or wisdom to give to God. It's simply because God chose me. And God chose to bestow spiritual insight and spiritual eyes so that I might understand what took place in the cross. And I come to understand how holy God is and how sinful I am and how I need to span that gap somehow. Because my righteousness will never measure up to His. And left to myself, I'm doomed. But, but you know what? I've come to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross that I might live. And, and through faith in Him, His righteousness is given to me that I'm holy. And my sin is given to Him being suffered upon the cross. His righteousness imputed to me, my sin imputed to Him. Therefore, God can forgive me. Because He's already punished my sin. He can be just in punishing my sin. And yet, He can be the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. And I can be holy enough to enter God's presence because I've received the righteousness of Christ in my soul. And my life that I live now is a testimony of His grace from saving me from my sin. He's opened my eyes to see the light of the Gospel, the glory of Christ. And I know that those who come to Him will never be cast out. Because through the promises of God, I can rest assured in God's great love for me because His life, my life is His because His life was mine. That's the testimony every Christian can say. And that, by the way, is the motivation then behind these eight Christian virtues in our life. God is working in our life. He chose us, He made us holy, and He continues to love us. And so, we need to act in a certain way. Last half of verse 12 through verse 14. Eight Christian virtues to put on. I want to just zip through these verses at first, through these, these uh, virtues at first. Just kind of giving us a, a virtue and a definition, a virtue and a definition. And then we'll spend some time lingering here to, to talk about each of them. But let's talk first about compassion. You know, compassion is, um, is the pity that comes upon somebody when he sees the misfortune of others. That's what compassion is. The compassion one feels in his own heart what others are feeling when difficulties come upon them. If you lend someone your car and they get hit by a drunk driver, compassion pities those who borrowed your car knowing they feel really, really bad. The one with compassion right, weeps with those who weep. Kindness. At its root, this word means a genuine goodness towards another person. The kind one is the one who wants only good for others. The one who's filled with kindness will go to the refrigerator and, and bring a glass of water on a hot day. We'll mix up the lemonade. The one with kindness will offer the best seat because they want you to be comfortable and, and not me. Kindness will extend goodwill towards other people. That's kindness. Humility. Literally, this word means lowness of mind. 
Right? Men have been studying this in men's equippers the past several months, really. The humble one doesn't bring attention to himself, his gifts, his achievements, but only considers himself to be a servant of others. The one who is humble will regard one another as more important than himself, giving himself to them because he thinks of himself low, but thinks of themselves, think of them as high. Gentleness this describes a delicate consideration for the rights and feelings of others, right? The gentle one isn't concerned about himself, doesn't pity himself or feel sorry for himself like he deserves anything. Rather, the one who's gentle is like the sacrificial nursing mother who tenderly cares for her own children, right? Sacrificing sleep and her own comfort and, and her own opportunities and privileges, right, for the good of the baby that. She cares for. Gentle is the nurse who cares for others. Patience. Literally, this word means long-suffering. Macrothumia. It's the opposite of quick temper. Quick temper will blow off right away, but the one who's patient will wait. And will wait. And will wait. And will wait. And continue to do what's right, even when experiencing difficulty at the hand of others. The one who is patient will not be quarrelsome, but with gentleness will correct those in opposition. Forbearance. This is the word uh, I'm using to summarize the first half of verse 13, which says bearing with one another. Or you could say forbearing with one another. Right? The word describes an endurance with an element of leniency towards another person whose actions tend to provoke you. Uh, have you ever noticed that other people can provoke you using... Annoying things that they do. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, I think about kids. They might choose to speak only in a robot voice and they only answer you like that and they just continue to bother you. Or maybe they have this constant song that gets on your nerve that they sing and they sing. Or maybe your friend has a, a constant cough. <coughs> Or an incessant snort, you know, from the, the nasal. This drip. They can't help it. They've got stuff in there. And it gets annoying. Maybe your husband prefers to drive waiting as long as possible to put on the windshield wipers. You know, when you're sitting shotgun and watching it sing. I think he put the windshield wipers on. Oh, no, it's okay. You know, and drops are coming down and you're kind of seeing through this stained glass. It almost seems like, it's okay, I can see. It's annoying. Maybe your wife might enjoy whistling doing your housework. I just don't like the whistling. The one who forbears just overlooks all those things. Overlooks all those things. Tolerant of the idiosyncrasies of others. The one who forbears will wait with composure even when provoked. Even when trying to provoke you. As is the case sometimes. Forbearance. Forgiveness. This word describes the pardon that's granted to those who have wronged you. The forgiving one will, will be able to let go of the sinful action and freely extend goodwill to those who have done you wrong. That's what it means to forgive. The one who forgives will never again bring the offense to light because it's been dealt with. Will never feel any, any urge to put revenge upon someone else. That's what forgiveness is. In fact, Look at how Paul, even at this point, we need to expand our definition here because Paul expands the definition here. Forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. A forgiveness of others, right, is based upon the forgiveness that we have experienced by God in Christ. You know, maybe you remember the parable that Jesus told about forgiveness. Peter came and asked Jesus, Hey, Jesus, how many times must I forgive my brother? Seven times? You know, he kind of puffed himself up because the Jewish teaching tradition took some passages from Amos where, where God says, right, for, for three sins I'll do this, for a fourth vengeance comes. And say, oh, three times is all you need to forgive somebody a transgression. And so he doubled the Jewish teaching and added one and thought, hey, I've caught the drift of what you're saying, Jesus, seven times. And Jesus says, you remember how many times he said? No, not seven. Maybe a little bit more, right? 
70 times 7. He's saying just, you know what? Forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. And then he tells this parable, right? Of a slave who owed astronomical debt could never be repaid in several lifetimes. And when his master found out the extent of the debt of this slave, he threatened to sell the slave along with his wife and his children to make repayment of the debt. And the, and the, and the slave pleaded with the master and says, No, no, have patience with me. I'll repay everything. He was never going to come up with that sum of money. It was so astronomical, there was no way that he was going to be able to do that. But with unbelievable grace and kindness, the master forgave him his debt completely. Unbelievable. This master did. And you'd think that such a realization, right, would change the slave's character, especially as it relates to others, right? Forgive as it has been forgiven to you, right? Just as the master forgave me of a big debt, so also I should forgive others of big debt because I don't, I don't need anything from them to pass it on to pay this guy. I, I've been forgiven. I, my debts essentially are all canceled as well. But it didn't change this man's character. When he went out, he found one of his own slaves, owned him a very small debt. More than $20, but something that could have reasonably come up with in a series of time and a payment plan and could have easily done that. And when the slave pleaded for mercy from his master with the exact same words, oh, just be patient with me and I'll, I'll pay it all. He gave no mercy, extended no forgiveness there at all. He should have just said, you're forgiven. Instead, he demanded repaid and he took the, the slave and he threw him in prison. Now, word gets back to the master who originally forgave this huge debt. And then he said, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. He forgave it simply because of a, of a prayer, of a pleading, of an asking. He said, should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? It's exactly what's being talked about here. Shouldn't you forgive others just as the Lord in Christ Jesus has forgiven us? I mean, that's the, that's the context here. Each of us has been forgiven a, a, an unbelievable debt of sin before God. I mean, I, I think about everything that I might try to say about how bad sin is before God's sight, or everything that I might try to, uh, to show you how bad your sin is, you know, when we get to heaven, right, we will see just how bad our sin was and see how, how big this debt really was that we thought, whatever, however big we think it is, with an infinite God, it's going to be a higher transgression. You know, any sin against an infinitely holy God has infinite consequences. And our minds will always have some finite consequences, but it needs to go bigger than that. And that's the debt that we have been forgiven. And as our great sin has been forgiven freely through the blood of Christ, merely by a pleading to God for mercy, God be merciful to me, a sinner, so also we need to forgive others of their sins just as freely. Well, let's look at the last Christian virtue. It's love. This word describes an interest in the love of others. The loving one will place himself in the shoes of a neighbor and then will do to that person just as if he was there, he would like that neighbor to do unto him. Right? It's selfishness turned on its side. Because everyone's selfish, wants their own thing. You put yourself in their shoe. What is it that they like? And you seek to satisfy that. The one who loves will give himself completely to see another prosper and benefit. Now, we also need to pay some attention here to verse 14 because this one is expanded on as well. He doesn't just list them, right? He doesn't say, um, forgiving other love, right? He says, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. You know, expressing compassion towards others is great and, and we need to do it. But you know what? Beyond compassion, he says, put on love. And extending kindness to other people, is necessary. But he says this, beyond being just kind to people, put on love. Humility is essential, but <clears throat> beyond humility, put on love. Beyond gentleness, beyond patience, beyond forbearance and forgiveness, put on love. Why? Because love will bind us together. When you love, you will be compassionate. When you love, you will be kind. 
When you love, you will be humble towards others. When you love, you will be gentle and patient. When you love, you will forbear and you will forgive. All these things really flow from love. Right? So if you put love on, you get all these other things. In fact, listen to the definition of love Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4-7. through 7. And as I, as I list them off for you, think about this list. Love is patient. Oh, there it is. Love is kind. Oh, there it is. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. Oh, there it is. It's not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's gentle, right? It's not provoked. It forbears. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. It forgives. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoice in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And there's not a single characteristic that's listed here in Colossians 3 that's not listed in 1 Corinthians 13. And so I simply say this, when these things take place, when we are loving towards one another, we will be unified together in a unified body. I say, does Rock Valley Bible Church need unity today? We need it in the biggest way. How can we obtain it? By putting on love. That's why it's so good. The ladies' Bible study is studying love this fall. It's so needed. It's the highest of virtues. Like, it's the best. We can speak with the tongues of angels, but if we have not love, we're nothing. We can give all of our money away, be the biggest philanthropist in the world, and yet not have love. And if that's the case, we're nothing. We can give ourselves over, have body to be burned, sacrifice of ourselves, but we can do that without having love. In that case, we are, are nothing. But we need to put on love. And it's, I think the ladies focus on this key issue. It will help the unity of the body. It will stir us. So how do we love? Well, let me just kind of summarize it all down to this. Have a heart of well-being for others. Have a heart of well-being for others. Just be others-focused and desire for their goodness and for their well-being. You know, when Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment in the law, He summed it up with the word love, right? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. You want to love, first of all, on the vertical plane, put God's interest far above your interests. Right? Realize you are, are His vessel to be used however He wants and you just want Him to be magnified. That's love to God. And love to others is, is wanting others to, to grow and prosper and, and have prosperity and, and do well and be comfortable. and Do whatever you can. That's what love is. Loving your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus was pressed about this meeting a little bit, a guy came up and said, well, who's my neighbor? You remember the story he told told the story of the Good Samaritan. Right? That man was so interested in the well-being of another person that he crossed all social, economic, cultural barriers in helping the despised Samaritan who had been robbed on the way. And we start to love like that, the unity at Rock Valley Bible Church will abound. That's hard. <laughs> I'm not up here saying this is easy. I, I know this is hard. You know, in recent days, we've had some neighborhood boys come over. They finally spotted the skate ramp we have in the back of our house. They finally spotted it. And um, we built it in the backyard. Well, actually, it's kind of given to us. But one of our visions of it is that it would be a magnet to draw kids so that they'd come to our house and we could share the love of Christ with them rather than us sending our kids to someone else's house. We want our house to be the center of attention. These boys are loud and they're selfish and they're interest only in themselves. And you know what's interesting is that almost every single one of them is from a broken home. So I was out there yesterday. I was, I was talking to them and uh, just finding out, well, why are they here? <laughs> the four, five boys, I think, who came over yesterday. You know what? And uh, three of them are living with their grandma because their home is so broken. Divorce, mom can't support. They live with grandma. And these kids are difficult to love. And yet, that's the whole purpose of why we've had this skate ramp. And the call of God is to love those who don't know Christ. And so, we had the opportunity yesterday by loving them. And I showed them my, my wares on the skate ramp. And they went, oh, you know, just excited. And, 
And um, that's okay. And I told them of how to, how to do it and gave them some counsel and advice. Even had the opportunity to speak to them about the gospel of Christ. Um, you know, you just show interest in them. And this one, this one kid showed up with black fingernail polish. His fingers. I said, what's that about? I said, who did that to you? He said, my brother. I said, my brother's goth. I said, so what does that mean? And, and they all said, oh, that means we worship the devil, is what that means. I said, do you think that's a good thing? And they all said, no, that's not a good thing. And so I had an opportunity to proclaim King Jesus. And that in Jesus and believing in him, there's forgiveness of sins. You can be his friend. I just work on it. You know, I think about giving them some tracks, but that'll wait for another day as we reach out to them. But that's even reaching out towards the Samaritan. What about reaching out and loving those in our body? I mean, our love for one another needs to abound. You know, it's Sunday morning as we gather together. Certainly, it's to worship God, but there's also another motive going on here on Sunday morning. It's a catalyst to put us all together so we can network together to find out what's going on in people's lives so we can love one another throughout the week. As we see a particular needs or particular ways in which we can get together and, and love one another. And then we come together, right? We can, we can see how so-and-so is doing because we've been praying for them. And we can help them do whatever needs to be helped on. And we can spend time together encouraging one another. And as we do this, the world will see us, a body of disciples, and will know that we are His disciples. And that is evangelism as well. And that's my prayer at Rock Valley Bible Church, is that love would bind us together in the Perfect bond of unity. Well, there are the eight virtues that Paul calls us to. And, and I think I've just zipped through all of these things. And each of them are really so important that I, I'm sure I could spend a topical message looking at each of these because the Scripture is so exhaustive on all of these. And yet, when the, the church at Colossae received this letter, do you know what they did with this letter? They read it to the church. There's a man in Greek who stood in front of a congregation just read it through and they spent a lot less time on these eight virtues than I have spent with you. And do you know what they were going to do after they read this letter to, to Colossae? They're going to put it, give it to a messenger and that messenger is going to go over to Laodicea. That's what it says in chapter 4, verse 16, right? When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And by the way, when it was read, everyone was there. Wives were there, husbands were there, children were there, fathers were there, slaves were there, masters were there. It was read to them and then passed on the church in Laodicea was going to be read. And then Paul had written another letter, Laodicea is going to be read to them as well. Perhaps the book of Ephesians. We don't exactly know. But there was. It's going to be read to them. So they went through all of this. right? And, and I think I could just spend one week on each each of the eight virtues. But in doing so... We'd kind of miss it. I think we'd get back a little bit to the, the point of how the Bible is just a, a book of things we should do and things we don't do because we'd miss this flavor because there is a foundational reason why we do all these things. It's not simply that Paul told us to do these things. It's because we're chosen of God and we're holy in Him and we're loved of God. And you need to hear that in context. It's because of, of who God is and what He's done for us that we respond in these ways. I mean, you can't forgive one another if you haven't been forgiven. You can't bear with one another unless you understand truly the, the forbearing love of Christ. You can't love unless you've first been loved. Well, let me attempt to give you the Steve Brandon living and amplified version of how you should read these verses. All right? I'm just going to expand upon each of these, trying to pull it all in context. Paul says, As those who have been the object of God's tremendous graciousness in choosing you, making you holy through faith in Christ, setting His love upon you so that you are secure in His love, so live in light of those reasons. As God has been compassionate toward you, being gracious toward you, sinner though you be, be compassionate to others who are likewise sinners. As God has demonstrated His kindness to you and returning your hatred towards Him with His love towards you, so be kind to others even when they hate you. As Jesus put forth His humility in dying for a rebel worm like yourself, so be humble before others and give them your service. As Jesus was meek and gentle of heart, be gentle and caring for others. As God was patient with you during your, the days of your rebellion, be patient with others who may be rebelling as well. As God has endured your foibles and weaknesses and continual sin, 
Endure the weaknesses and sins of others who may irritate you from time to time. As God has forgiven you abundantly through faith in Jesus and and nothing more, simply by a, a plea to Him, so also should you forgive other people just as abundantly and just as freely. As God has loved you with an everlasting love that is renewed every morning, love others as well. What each of us are called to in the Christian community. We're called to to live out this electing love of God in our lives. We're called to live out this justification that we experience. We're called to live out the love of God shown to us to be others. There's this hymn, Channels of Blessing, right? Make me a channel, God. What what comes to me, may I just channel it through to others. And and let the, the goodness that we receive from God not land on us and so we'd be selfish, but let the goodness we receive from God extend its way out in goodness and kindness towards others. And you know, in that way, I think the fulfillment of things are true, right? They'll see our good deeds and glorify our fathers in heaven because as God has been kind to us, we're kind and gracious to others. I say, boy, you're so kind and gracious. Well, it's because I've received that from the Father. And really, as you think about all these things, they are simply a reflection of God. When Moses requested of God to see His glory, the Lord said, I'll make all my goodness to pass before you. God, God, let me see your glory. He says, okay, I'm going to show you my goodness because the goodness of God is His glory. And He says, I'm going to let it pass before you. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and show compassion whom I'll show compassion. Right? So, so God put Moses in the cleft of His rock. Can't see His face and lose. So covered him before and then as He went by, Moses saw the backside of God. The Lord passed by Moses. Here's what the Lord declared. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That is Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. I mean, you can pick out every single one of those characteristics, right? The, the Lord God, compassionate, it's right there. The Lord God, gracious, it's right there. He's kind. The Lord God slow to anger. It's right there. He's patient. The Lord God abounding in loving kindness and truth. There He is abounding in love. Keeping His loving kindness for thousands. Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Right? Forgiving. Being gracious and kind. That's everything who God is. And we could go through every single one of these characteristics and talk about how it reflects God. I mean, God is one who's compassionate towards His people. Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14. Just as a father is compassionate to his children... So the Lord is compassionate upon those who fear Him. He Himself knows our frame. He's mindful that we're but dust. He knows we're nothing better than the dirt of the ground. But He has compassion upon us. The Lord's extended His kindness toward His people. The second term there, Psalm 106, verse 7. The psalmist describes everything that God did in redeeming Israel out of slavery. He described it as a demonstration of His abundant kindnesses. And in fact, in the ages to come, Heaven will all be about demonstrating and showing forth the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Just His abundant kindness towards us is shown in Israel, is shown in saving us, and will be shown forever. The Lord's demonstrated humility in the Incarnation. I mean, you think you are, are humbled to maybe clean a floor or wipe a diaper or to you know, clean up some vomit or something? God's humility was far greater than that. He came from Godhead to humanity. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, not just even becoming a man, that would be bad enough, but he humbled himself even to dying the worst death that anyone could imagine dying, a shameful death upon the cross. As Jesus walked the earth, He demonstrated His gentleness right there, the fourth term, right? He Himself said, I'm gentle and humble of heart. He had time for the children. He tenderly cared for the sick and the diseased, the demon-possessed, the epileptics and the paralytics. And the sense you get from the Scriptures is that there's a big line. And Jesus dealt with them one by one, personally, gently, carefully, healing them, letting them go their way. Taking another one in, healing them, letting, letting them go their way. Healing them, Letting them go their way. Jesus could have said, be healed. Boom! Everyone healed. And scattered. But He did so in such a, a kind and gentle way. 
showing the care of God. And oh, does the Lord have patience, this fifth virtue. If you only knew of His holiness and purity and righteous demands for those who walk upon the earth, you would be amazed, amazed that the earth continues in existence for even a single microsecond longer than it does. You would be amazed the patience of God. He's patient. And you know why He delays His, his patience, His judgment? Do you know why He's patient? He's waiting for repentance to take place. He's waiting for those rebelling against Him to come to a state where they, they submit to Him, right? Or do you think lightly of the kindness and the riches of His patience and forbearance? Not knowing the kindness of God is what leads you to repentance. The Lord bears with us. He knows our weaknesses and we don't know how to pray. The Spirit helps our weaknesses and helps us pray. We're tempted by sin, right? The Lord Jesus is praying for us as a great high priest, right? We say when we need things, what we need to do, we need to come to Him and we'll find grace and mercy to help in time of need because He's praying with us. He'll bear us along. And we're weak and heavy laden. Jesus takes the burden upon Himself and carries us along. The Lord forgives us. It's a great reality of our salvation that God's a forgiving God. The Scripture says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let Him return to the Lord and He'll have compassion on Him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. Psalm 130 says that with God there is abundant redemption overflowing. And He forgives freely those that come to Him by faith, believing in His Son. And the Lord, last of all, is the epitome of love. I mean, it was His great love for us that sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to turn away His own wrath. And it wasn't simply a one-time act that the Lord did for us. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. Every morning, God's loving kindness has been renewed and refreshed. Great is His faithfulness, right? His love is continually directed towards us and there's nothing that can separate us from His love. It continually gets recharged. Just as we go to sleep each night and wake up recharged to face the day with energy, so also every day God's love just gets renewed and renewed and renewed and renewed. (laughs) And all these things, bottom line, is that we need to become imitators of God. We are His beloved children and our actions need to reflect it. You know, one of the things that I've appreciated about my dad who's sitting right there in the back row is he's always told me, he said, Steve, I'm never going to tell you to do anything that I'm not willing to do myself. And you know, it's true. If he sent me off to do something, I know that he was willing to do it himself. It's not that, oh, I don't want to do that. I'm, well, I'm too high for that. You, you can do that, Steve. No, it's not like that. He's willing to do it, but for the sake of managing the household and time, He sends me off to do that. You know what? And that is true of God as well. God hasn't called us to do anything that He first isn't willing to do Himself. For years and years and decades and generations in the entire history of the globe, God has shown Himself to be these ways. He's simply calling us to imitate Him. Well, how will we be able to do these things? You know, it's, it's one thing to know these things. It's another thing to do them. An experience last night, I talked to my kids and asked if I could do, share this, and they said yes. But it is, it is a perfect picture of, of how this is. You know, last night we had family worship, and you know, at the end of the time I opened up to Colossians chapter 3 and um, just shared with them about my text. I shared with them my outline reviewed what Colossians 3 was and talked about you know, these things of compassion and kindness and gentleness and humility and patience and forbearance and forgiveness and love. And we just went over them and talked about them for a little bit. And they said, yeah, we understand. And we prayed for the application of that this morning. And we prayed that it would come forth here. And so we said, okay, guys, let's get ready for bed, okay? All right. You know, and, and, and they all, first of all, they didn't jump up right away. You know, we had to tell them several times, okay, get ready, get ready, go ahead. Then they go into the bathroom and all we hear is this big clamor. You know, they're fighting over the toothbrushes and they're fighting over the sink and they're fighting over the drawers and combs to comb their hair. And Yvonne turned to me and said, how easy are these things to know, but how difficult are they to apply? And I told the kids, you know, I asked them for permission doing this. I said, 
I'd like to share that story because it illustrates so well what may well happen today, Sunday morning, is that, yeah, you know all these things. You know all these things are true about God and you could walk right out of here and uh, have some kind of family conflict and forget all these things like that. And I told our kids that, you know what, Mom and Dad, we're just like that. And I didn't say at all that, oh, you kids are like that, but we are, we're just like that. And I know that we all as a church can be just like that as well. And so you say, how can we do these things? And the only thing we can do is pray to our high priest. We might find grace and help in time of need. And this is a time of need for us. That we need these actions desperately to uh, be manifest in our life. That we would have a, a unity among us as a church. And that we would reflect our Father that we might then give praise to Him as others see our good works and glorify Him, not us. So let's pray as we even think then transitioning to Lord's Supper. So let's pray. Oh God, these, these things are so simple and easy to talk about and so pleasant, so easy. And yet so hard. Oh God, they're hard. They're hard because we're battling with our sin. And I would pray, Lord, that we would so set our minds on the things above that we would imitate the One who is above. And I pray that we would realize the realities of everything we have in Christ. So we would walk in a manner worthy of the One who called us. Lord, we simply need Your help in these things. And so, God, I pray that you'd come and and you'd help us and you would give us a a supernatural strength to be able to do these things. And and, uh, when someone would seek to praise us because we are are demonstrating kindness and compassion to others, maybe be quick to say, no, it's, it's, it's the grace of God within me. That's what transformed the Apostle Paul from the greatest of sinners to the greatest of saints. God, not because he worked really hard or accomplished everything, but it was the grace of God that worked within him. And so he gave the credit and the glory to you in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, even here in Colossians. God, we saw at the end of, of chapter 1 of how your power mightily works within us to labor and strive God, for the sake of the elect, for the sake of your church. And so, God, in all these things, come among us and be among us and transform us and give us a unity and give us a joy in the Holy Spirit. May these things manifest in our lives as we have been chosen of you and we've been holy and we've been loved of you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're going to have the opportunity this morning to show forth our unity in the the Lord's Supper. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11.